All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, this is Sugar Steve from Questlove Supreme. This March, we're celebrating women's history at QLS, something that we've done for years. Back in March of 2022, we spoke to Terry Lynn Carrington about her years as a jazz prodigy, some of the prejudice she faced as a young female drummer playing with elder males, and how she kicks down the doors for others as founder and artistic director of the Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice. As a jazz guy, I really enjoyed this episode. Whether you heard it when it was first released or this is your first time, we hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, another episode of Questlove Supreme. I'm your host, Questlove. We got Team Supreme in the hit house. Montigolo. Wow, new. If Bill Sherman were here, he would notice that you're in yet a, another room in the house? Yeah, this is uh, my studio. It's just easier for me here. I normally record in my living room, but my son is going to virtual school down downstairs, so I just bring it upstairs to the studio. Do it here. Wait, virtual school is still going on? Or is it optional now? As well, we. Yeah, it's optional. We did it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He'll be, <laughs> He'll be going back to classroom for his junior year, but for this year, it was just the numbers around here were crazy, so we put him in virtual. Smart. We got to be smart, man. Uh, Steve, where are you at right now? I'm where you are in the 67 degrees at 30 Rock. We're freezing in 30 Rock right now. Hey, yeah. Keep that, keep that COVID out. It's cold. I know. Yeah, freeze the COVID out. Definitely. Uh, Laia, where are you at with your oh, you uh, black know. art behind you? Lemur all day. That's where I'm Yo, Laia, I forgot yeah. to tell you. You was here. I took my first visit to Lemur Park. You yeah. know what? I can't stand you. I, <laughs> d- I only had only had like 35 minutes to, to run the Juneteenth. You was I, at I the felt, Juneteenth Festival. I felt I was like I was too. in a legit episode of Insecure, yo. Somebody told one, me they saw Black Thought. I thought they was lying. It was awesome. Yeah, I went, I went to uh, Juneteenth for half a second. Then I went to uh, the the body roll party, like in another side of L.A. Yeah, like this, Saturday, man. I, it was it was one of the nicest, blackest experiences I've ever had in Los Angeles. People so, don't know for, about that. I'm glad you said that. I forgot. Yeah, yeah you're you're a Lemur Parker. Did you enjoy yeah. it? I I loved it. This was an amazing Juneteenth weekend. I mean. 
Thank God we came through. It was looking sketchy for a minute because of Walmart and them, but it came right. through nicely. Oh, that damn ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Bill, you know, Billy Higgins had the world stage there. Um, so you, you probably, if you, this is your yeah. first time in Lamert Park, you, yeah, then you never experienced that, but that was no. really dope back in the day. I'm learning. I'm learning. Yes, well, queen. you know, if we if we bring the festival back to Los Angeles, I think we're going to travel with it. So we're looking at like Texas and other spots, but Exclusive I definitely want to do another June team. Nice. Oh God, did I? Yeah, I, yes, well, you did. Yes, you did. You did it. You did. It's okay. Well, there's nothing exclusive about wanting to spread the Juneteenth love around. Anyway, y'all, as I was saying, you know. I would say that this year for me uh, has been an awesome year for bucket listing. And I'm checking, I, I guess you could say I, I, I'm checking a lot of my uh, musical heroes, bringing them on the, the show and nerding out on them. And our guest today is absolutely no exception. I'll say that she's probably the first young person, male or female, the first young person that I ever saw on a drum set. And wow. I guess at the time when I first, I forget the name of the show, it was like on PBS, like Rebop or something like that. I, I forget what it was, but it was definitely one of those like local Boston shows or whatever. And to see a young kid on a drum set definitely made uh, 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 an impression on me uh when i was a kid i forget what year it was like i was like six or seven when i first saw you i think you were like 12 13 or whatever but she's yeah, literally zoom. done it all grammys yeah. college professor two-time late night band leader um activist producer um collaborated with such uh luminaries like uh the great clark terry wayne shorter herbie hancock i know that you have to be in the meditation if you if you have <laughs> <laughs> you collaborated with those two. Um, yeah, but I'm a bad Buddhist. <laughs> yeah, Esperanza Spalding, the whole mosaic project with with uh you know Diana Crawl and 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 the likes, Al Jarreau, Stan Getz, Clark Terry, Woody Shaw, I can go on and on and on. Woo! Uh this has been a long time coming. Thank you for your patience because this this is one of these episodes where, you know, because of the Courses and events of my life in the last month or so. I've had to put this off at least three or four times. You've been very patient. Finally, I can say, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Questlove Supreme, Terry Lynn Carrington. Thank you. Yes. Appreciate it. Thank you. How are you today? I'm great. It's my pleasure talking to you. I'm a big fan and I love everything that you do. So the admiration is mutual. We've, we've never had an a in-depth heart-to-heart like conversation. So whenever... I hear through other people like, oh, you know, Terry says, what's up or whatever. You know, occasionally you've come by, like, I've seen you play a few gigs or whatever, and I'm still mind blown. Like, there's there's always this this thing where, you know, jazz musicians are so not above the fray, but just like above whatever mm-hmm. is below them as far as pop music is concerned or whatever. Like, it's all one thing. It's all black music. You know, sure. like, I mean, it all comes from the blues. So it, there was something, something would be wrong with me if I didn't appreciate what you do. You know, Thank so you. <laughs> that would be like, if any, you know, if I had a jazz friend that you know, didn't appreciate you, I would be looking at them sideways. Well, I, I thank you for that. I appreciate it. <laughs> where, where are you talking to us right now from? You have a very interesting background. It, 
it's, it looks like a mall and a prison at the same time. I have a few backgrounds. Um, I'm, I'm at home, uh, but okay. that's just my Berkeley background. Here's another Berkeley background. Yes. Here's an animated one with, uh, I don't know, who's that? Toshikaki Yoshi Vi Red and Alice Coltrane. Mm. Here's okay. one I just want to see Obama drop the mic. Mm. Here's when, I, when I'm missing my grandmother. Wow. <laughs> nice. Uh, okay. Here's our slogan. Uh, you can't really see it, but it's jazz without patriarchy. Oh, and this one you might recognize. This is from Soul, because you know I was a consultant on Soul. Yes. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah. I know. I know. Yeah. Like they, they, they went above and beyond the Call of Duty to ask every wow jazz luminary for their for their uh, advice. Um, yeah, it was fun doing that. I was at doing some meetings. The first one, Herbie was at, and I was probably the only one in the room that you know might have a difference in opinion, you know, with Herbie and be able to actually say it. Right. You know what I mean? Because everybody gets scared. So to speak uh, up. Right. Yeah. You know. Wow. And then here's my my, uh, my biggest mentor. <laughs> Man. Yeah. So anyway, we just had so- him on the show. Shout out to Wayne Shorter. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. I was going to say, we. I, I was shocked at the amount of feedback we got for that particular episode. Like, a lot of heavy jazz heads yeah. hit us because and kind of thanked us for asking questions that we norm, like, aren't normally asked, you know, in other yeah. interviews. Yeah. And just letting him talk. That's what we did. We let him talk. Exactly. That's the right thing. <laughs> so I'm going to start with you, Terry, the way I always start the episode. Can you tell me what your first musical memory was? Wow. You know, they happened so long ago that it's kind of like a movie that I'm a part of that I'm, I watched and it feels real because I watched it. But was I really there? You know what I mean? Like I right. played uh, tambourine when I was five years old on stage with Rasson Roland Kirk, and that was probably the first time I was wow. on stage. How many you know, saxophones I, did he play? <laughs> always, at least three. <laughs> Until he had a stroke, and then I would see him after that, and then he played with one hand, one saxophone. But he might have even worked, too, with the one hand. Right. You know. But, was um, any of that surreal to you? I mean, I, I'm with with most kids that I see, especially kids that are, I guess you could say progeny of like other, I, I know that uh, your father and your grandfather um, were musicians as well. So oftentimes, you know, at least there's a realization moment of what you're really into, but that usually comes in your teens. But in the beginning, it's just like, hey, this is dad and this is granddad and here's some musicians around the house. Like, but yeah. did anything strike you odd about this you know, this this guy with dread, or I don't know if he had dreadlocks back then, but playing three saxophones at the same time, like nothing seemed odd about that to you? <laughs> yeah, but you know, when you're young, you don't really pay attention to all that. Like you're just doing you and I was having fun. So, and I was getting attention. So I knew I was different from the other, you know, elementary school kids that I was hanging out with because Ebony came to school to take pictures of me, you know, mm-hmm. when I was uh, 11. What a flex. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> what was home yes. like after that? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, from the black kids, you know, there might have been, I don't know, six or seven in my class. So, of course, they knew what was happening. The other kids, I'm not sure they knew what Ebony was. <laughs> but, where, where did you grow up? Where were you born? In Medford, Massachusetts. Oh, hey. okay. How far is that from Boston? To anyone outside of New England, like Massachusetts, just like Boston. And then a bunch of uh, 
Mm-hmm. Suburbs. Green areas. And- where, where New Edition's from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roxbury. Roxbury. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Damn. You grew up in Roxbury? Oh, hell no. Oh, <laughs> okay. I thought I, <laughs> I was could, like, you know, go to Roxbury, but my dad would remind me, you know you're from West Medford. But our our um area of town, West Medford, was the most heavily settled black area outside of Boston. Um, so, like, for instance, in my high school, 4,000 people in the high school, uh, close to 4,000. And at the time, when I was in high school, there were 365 black kids, which is not quite even 10%. But when we had lunch, you know, <laughs> I'm sitting with 200 black kids. So I, it felt like it was, you know, it was a black environment, you know, for our circle. But it was, was, just so big. was Boston the south of the north? Again, like I'm so triggered by anything to do with Massachusetts. I just naturally think that Massachusetts is just one of these states that escaped, you know, uh, the the Confederate, you know, just based (laughs) on what we've learned about it. But like in your childhood, was it was it like that at all or? I mean, I I came like right after the busing situation and there was like a, a bit of a riot at my high school about you know surrounded by some kind of rape or about some kind of racial incident um but that happened right before i got to high school um and i mean you know i was going into boston weekly at least i got a scholarship to berkeley when i was 11 and uh, i was going weekly (laughs) yeah i was going to say you went to berkeley while still in in junior high school correct well, elementary. 11, so I was yeah, in elementary when I started, yeah. but um, that I went once a week, um, so it wasn't like that big a deal, you know. I went after school once a week and took private lessons and ensemble. That's and a then, big deal. You know, special. <laughs> but what I mean is, it wasn't like stressful. Berkeley reject. That's a big deal. <laughs> well, then that's their loss, <laughs> right? Damn right. I'm not bitter at all. <laughs> But what I must say, though, is, um, you know, Boston, is, in a weird way, is kind of the most liberal and conservative places you'll ever be. It's a total, you know, dichotomy of, of these things. And um, everybody hates the Celtics and all that. But, you know, nobody ever talks about how uh, we had the first black coach and one of the first black players. Hmm. I never thought that about the Celtics. For real? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, wow. you look it up. Wow. So I'm just saying, like, there's a lot of things wrong racially with yeah. what's happened here. But, you know, there's, it's, it's not all bad. And there were, you know, places uh, like where I grew up that had heavily populated black areas. And it was very, you know, rich in culture. All right. So if, if ever the Patriots or the Celtics win again, I'll, yeah. I'll add you to my new edition pile. Like, OK, well, <laughs> at least you seven are happy. So. <laughs> that and universal health care, Mayor. Massachusetts did that first too. Remember free health care? Yep. 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 I mean, you know, if you're from a place, you, there's got to be some love. You know, like I used to, I used to hate to go to Philadelphia, <laughs> but you know, I, I, got, I got, I got happier as I went. You know, so right. as I learned more about the city, really, you know, I used to not like Chicago. You know, whatever. Like you, you have these experiences, and it's just as you grow, you have the other experiences that can make a place. Have some nostalgia at the at the very least. You didn't like traveling in general, or just yeah. I mean, well, I liked it. Now I don't particularly care for it. I have a love hate relationship because 
I am happiest sometimes when I'm just in a hotel room mm. and can close the shades and know. You know, lock everybody out. <laughs> I know. Because I'm not dealing with, oh, I got to fix this in my house. You know, I come home and I get stressed. I'm like, oh, my God, I got to paint the house. I need a new roof. You know, all right. those things start kicking in. But when I'm away, I can just yeah, <laughs> I can just focus on whatever it is I'm doing. Can I ask a question? Because I just want to know, you say from the jump, jazz was in your life in the sense that, like, no other, you weren't, even as a kid in school, because, I mean, you said Berkeley when you were 11. So I'm like, did anything else ever get into the household or into your ears outside of, of like, okay. Yeah, I mean, I was, I mean, I listened to the radio and I listened to, you know, like my father started me off listening to what he would consider more rhythm and blues, which at the time, we're talking about the early 70s. Um, But for him, like he played in horn sections with James Brown and Ruth Brown and people like that when he was in college. And um, so that's the kind of music he started me off listening to because he thought I would be able to relate to that, Mm -hmm. you know, more than John Coltrane or Miles Davis. Right. So I was listening to lots of organ, you know, lots of lots of blues, Jack McDuff, Jimmy McGriff, and, you know, some rhythm and blues, of course, James Brown, Ray, Ray, Ray Charles, uh, Aretha Franklin. And those are the records, you know, a lot of the records that I remember, you know, as a kid. Can you tell me the first album that you purchased with your own money? Not Ooh. just had around the house, like, oh, let me see what dad's James Brown's album are into, but like. Yeah, you know, like. I don't know if I purchased it, but I think I must have asked my parents to get uh, get it for me because I'm not sure they would have. For whatever reason, I was obsessed. And I remember I had one of those kids, uh, it was green too, one of those kids' uh, phonograph players that right. had a little speaker built in. And you just, <laughs> right. You know, little, little it, it out. Post preschool or whatever, uh, Fisher Price uh, record players. Yeah. yeah I feel like, like I that. know what this record, or what was the record? Oh, no, it was um, The Fifth Dimension. Oh, okay. It was, uh, uh, I was obsessed with uh, Aquarius. uh, Oh, wow. Yeah, for some reason. (laughs) Okay. The age of the Aquarius. I like, are you one? No, no. No, I'm a Leo. Okay. Okay. Boss, boss. I I forget. (laughs) (laughs) What, for that being the record? No, 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 no. I'm just saying. for being uh, a Leo? (laughs) No, it's for being a Leo. That's all. No. Get extra points if you're an Aquarian. For drumming, though, you know, I I know that there's a sect of people whose opinions are like, you know, at least for gender pairing, like, there are instruments that it's probably deemed that men should use only as far as masculine or feminine, whatever. Like, women on drums really, in my opinion, like an adjustment pre-1980s. But... At all. Did anyone ever discourage you? Like, well, why don't you try the piano or maybe a guitar? Violin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Clarinet. <laughs> yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know if anybody really ever discouraged me. I, um, and I was, you know, I, I, I was confident at a young age. So, uh, like, I think what tells the story about that for me the best is when I, met Buddy Rich for the first time. I was 10. I was a guest with Clark Terry. Was he nice to you? Well, that was the thing. Everybody said, stay away from him. He's in a really bad mood. And I didn't care. And I went up to him anyway. And uh, so then somebody stepped in and said, well, let me introduce you to young Terry. She's a guest with Clark Terry. And he said, oh, yeah, you better not be any good. And I just looked at him and said, well, who's going to stop me? Ooh. Hey. 
And then he said, he kind of took a step back. And then he said, you want to come play with my band? Oh, I, you see what nice. I mean? So, <laughs> flex. Flex. No, but it, it, well, it wasn't that. It was the beautiful just, flex. Well, yeah, because I think it's how you're raised. And, and I, I, I was raised that this is my music. Where did that confidence come from, Terry? Like, what, do you remember, like, did your parents something say to you, like the impetus of that? Like, I think it's who you are. And that's why I do so much um, gender equity work now, because every woman shouldn't have to be like me. I will go head to head with any man. You know what I mean? And I'm, I'm not intimidated by anyone. Um, I, I can be I can be shy and I can be insecure. Of course, we're all insecure. If I was playing a gig next to you, I would be insecure. Especially if I had to play groove, I'd be like, oh, man, oh, he's sitting next to me. Damn. You must be talking about Sugar Steve all. right now. Yo, that's crazy, Amir. I know. You're talking about Sugar Steve and his engineering skills. Or <laughs> Fonte Ryman. Exactly. <laughs> that's who she's no, talking about. I'm just about. saying, no, I'm serious. And so I'm just saying that doesn't mean, I think you can be confident and that be a part of your personality, which doesn't mean there's these other things that, you know, aren't there as well. But you shouldn't have to be like me to make it, you know, you, sh- you shouldn't have to have that kind of personality as a woman to to have the opportunity or the access or mentorship or apprenticeships. And so that's, you know, when I realized that, that's when I because I had been looking at women saying, well, what do you mean? Just do it. You know, like, what, what do you mean? Just what, later for them. You know, like somebody discovers you that should give you more impetus to, you know, and then I realized you know, they have nervous breakdowns and shit, you know, like, so I, I, I had to look at it differently. Cause everybody doesn't have a foundation. Cause you still had some type of foundation to let you know that that is the way to think. And these women didn't have that. So. And, and they don't need to, that's the whole thing. We're all different. You know, we don't have to be, so, I, I was nothing around nothing but men playing, you know, for a long time. And so I end up kind of acting like them, you know, and not be, you know, having a problem being around men all the time. So I think that, uh, you know, we, we should celebrate our differences. And what does a woman's aesthetic sound like in the music? You know, I think that's the question we should start to ask. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. 
Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic. So slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. I don't think I've ever went public uh, on record with... Uh, in high school, I once had um, a master class kind of uh, session with a well-known uh, patriarch of, of jazz music. I guess you could say he was a a, a, a total dick. And you know that that's actually where I was leaning towards. Like, especially there's a, there's a generation of cats who were sort of in the game in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s who, you know, don't mince words at all. They don't suffer any fools. They're very blatant and honest or whatever. And this guy just tore me up, man. Like everything. I, I didn't even get on the set. And he just looked at the loud shirt I was wearing, look at my hair. It's like, oh, see, you, I, I wouldn't hire you because your hair is just like a girl's right now, you know, with that, with them snakes in your hair or whatever. And like, he was just going in. And I remember like... After that day, that day I like distinctively remember like I'm not going the young lion route because, you know, I, I went to school with Christian McBride and Joey at Performing Arts High School. And so I was on that that sort of track every day trying to keep up with those two and become a young lion. Like, you know, because all those cats in Philly were just like even in high school, like doing sessions and what I, you know, I had the opposite reaction. I actually, that kind of like just got in my head and, you know, maybe like a year later, that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to go the roots route because, mm -hmm. you know, he told me that I don't look like a serious jazz cat. And, you know, it, it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, you can buy him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, well, where is he now? At least his I mean, masters. No, no, this, this, you know, this, this guy's a a legacy god in the world of jazz right now. You know, no longer with us, but you don't want to, you don't want to name his name, no. You know, what I say his name? Hey, dog, it was Ellis Marcellus. I'll just let it out there. Oh, anyway. well, yeah, he said, well, didn't that make sense? Well, I just mean, I've, I've, uh, you know, he was, you know, very kind to me. Actually, uh, he coached us once, but I've I feel like you're a disarming person. I feel like at the age of 10, you were very disarming with anyone that you met, you know, that would encourage you. Yeah. And I think that that's helped, you know, with the gender equity work now, because I'll get a lot of older musicians calling me saying, you know, I guess I've been an old fart or, you know, thanks for pointing this out. But, you know, the bottom line is. You shouldn't have to be that, and people should recognize what they're doing. And there are a lot of older musicians that basically bought into this, you know, patriarchy and brought into the bought into the hyper masculinity. And mm. what I'm finding is there's a lot of young musicians uh, from teaching at Berkeley, a lot of young male musicians that aren't digging the hyper masculinity. So they actually come to our institute because some people get it twisted and think that our institute is for women musicians or non-binary musicians. It's a space that they can come and 
and make mistakes and, and learn the music without uh, having their guard up. But right. we have about 50% uh, young men in our institute as well because they're rejecting the hyper-masculinity in, in jazz as well. And I think that we're really seeing a turning point right now. It's starting to really shift. And I think that the music needs that uh, for it to live up to its full potential. So let me ask you as a professor then, this is a, about the patriarchy, because how do you, since it was a, a, a art form built on that, doesn't right. it come to a certain point where you're at an impasse in explaining and you know, because I feel like we're in this point, too, of sometimes it's either that's what it was and we're trying to change it. Or how do we make that still legendary, even though that was a problem? Like, how do we keep that? You know, the patriarchy was patriarchy was never good. It wasn't good for anybody. Right. It was white, white male patriarchy, to be specific. Um, but, you know. I think that the oppressed learn how to oppress without trying. It's just, you know, that's what happens. And I felt I feel like this was, a, you know, this is just, you know, my opinion, but I feel like jazz was a space for for black men to, uh, you know, really feel freedom. Right. Black men. Exactly. You know, because I mean, well, well you go back you know, I've talked to Angela Davis about this and mm-hmm. and uh, different people, because when slavery ended, you know, black people couldn't travel. Right. They, you couldn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then when slavery ended. And there was a little bit of freedom. The first one I think that people took advantage of was being able to move, you know, being able to 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 go to another town. And, and you know, whether you're playing on the street or in a juke joint or wherever, you could bring your guitar and you could. But it wasn't safe still for women to do that. Right? Uh, OK, OK, and, OK. And and these places were not places uh, respectable women should women should be in. But they were there right? enjoying the music, though. They. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but not all women. You right, know, right, right. You know, certain types of, of women. Uh, brothels. Right, right, right. You I know, got the you. music was in these places. Right. So yeah. So it was that's what the music kind of that where it was birthed. Right? So it wasn't it was it wasn't spaces necessarily for women to discover their artistic uh you know, they, they discover that they could actually do this. Um, so they were always off to the side in the house, in the church, wherever, you know, and of course playing piano. And that's why I think that's so acceptable. You know, women always play piano in the house and in the church. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so then when women started traveling and getting into, you know, music and the blues, a lot of it was, uh, as singers, right. As vocalists. So you, then you had like, you know, Bessie Smith and, um, uh, Mamie Smith and, you know, some of the first blues women, uh, my rainy, but th- th- they became also um, like sexualized and, mm-hmm. and they had, you know, they were entertainers. You know, it wasn't necessarily as considered serious work. Musicians, musicians were doing the serious, you know, it was like, let's uh, commodify this. We can commodify this, you know, woman standing up front singing the blues more than we can commodify the dude with the guitar. Mm-hmm. Kind of singing the blues. So so those blues singers, the women, they sold more records, mm-hmm. you know? Okay. But Bessie Smith was selling, yeah. So my point is it started off like that. And, you know, then later, of course, in the 40s, when the war happened, all the women emerged playing because so many men were gone. Going to war, right. What blows my mind is that when they came back from the war, uh, 
It seemed like some women disappeared. Mm. You know, it came back to the, you know, those practices. And none of this really, you know, surprises me. Like when I look up, uh, I, I, I was ignorant to the story of Liberia. And I just kind of find out, found out about that. About the, the last... return? As far as yeah. The return. Yeah. And like when I saw some footage uh, of all the, the black people with the top hats and looking, trying to look British and then colonizing basically the Africans. I'm like, well, why would I expect anything different in jazz? Mm. I mean, you know what I mean? It's kind of, or in music, you know, it's like when you're oppressed, you just like that. You, you take off, that blueprint. I think it's human nature. Yeah, exactly. Without even knowing it's yeah. wrong sometimes, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. So do you feel like the age of the abusive, like in, in where we are now, um, like hip hop is is changing where, you know, there's a sort of like a, a, a slow sea change of a lot of toxic attitudes that were long associated with hip hop. You know, we're now just starting to see the seeds of it growing. And, you know, I will, will assume that if it's still a thing, in the 50s and 60s, 2050, 2060, uh, that we'll see a total turnaround. But like kind of the the age of the abusive actor and whiplash. Oh, whiplash. Oh, gotcha. J.K. Simmons. J.K. Uh, Simmons, the, yeah. <laughs> How abusive he was in whiplash. When you see that, it was, was that to you? Was it triggering? <laughs> yeah, I didn't see whiplash, you know. Um, what? I, I, everyone, when Whiplash came out, literally everyone asked me about it. Were, did people yeah, bombard the other you one with it? About the drummer too, right? The one that was lost his hearing. I didn't see oh, that. Either. Oh, oh yeah, uh, I, that was the one with uh, your boy. Um, uh, Ray, I'm about to say Freddie Mercury. Uh, yeah, but uh, I saw that though. <laughs> the Sound of Metal. That's the name of it. Sound of yes. Metal. That yes. movie is amazing. That shit is great. Yeah, I have so many thoughts, you know, about that. Uh, but the first one that just came to my mind is. Um, Damn, how do I say this? No, say po- it. Politically correct. I just mean like, you know, I, I, I'm I not so attracted to, uh, you know, white dudes suffering from some drum lessons. It just feels a little like there's been... There's some, God damn, there's, that's straight from the book of Fonte. <laughs> white trauma. White trauma. I just mean like, yeah, you know, so like for me, like, there's a lot more suffering that I'm going to focus on. Yeah. If I spend any part of my day dealing with that, I'm glad they made a movie and the drums are in the, in it and that people liked it. But, um, you know, he could walk away probably a lot easier than, you know, somebody else. And he actually, if you, you know, historically he has all the tools to, you know, fight back a little more than some of us. So right. I don't know. But anyway, uh, just as far as, that whole method of teaching. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this, this, of course, you, like I had a, like a well-known drummer <laughs> who's passed away and who was my teacher and he threw a book at me once, but he, he said, um, you know, was, he, he was frustrated with his career and he quit teaching right after that. He was teaching at Berkeley and he said, you're playing my shit. You're not supposed to play my shit. And then he <laughs> threw a book at me. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, I was just thinking that's got to be something for all these. I got to know. Please, I, I share my name. You share your name. Yeah, that's fair. That's yeah, fair. That's I mean it's okay because I, I I saw him and we you know had a beautiful time hanging out before you know shortly before he passed and he was living in Europe and it was Keith Copeland. Oh. And, uh, 
you know, so it's like I I didn't even I, I loved him and I felt like he loved me. And I never I think my parents were a little more upset about it than me, you know, because I just I shrugged it off. You know, that was I think that's been my way. And that's another thing I just want to point out since we're talking about it. Everything that's happened, like anything negative, I've had to shrug it off. For me, I had to just act like it didn't happen and keep moving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being in my brain, well, that's not going to stop me. You know what I mean? Like, right. And so then you look back and it's hard. You know, you start thinking. Like when I started playing with um, Esperanza and Jerry Allen, they started talking about, oh, this feels good. Like this is a space where, man, I can let my hair down. I don't have, you know, I, I'm not, um, what's the word? Uh, you know, there's a like a protective layer. Safe you know, space. Armor. Well, I'm, I was trying to think of how Esperanza put it, and she started talking about an armor that mm-hmm. she was able to let go of, and then Jerry was agreeing, and I was the only one sitting there saying, hmm, like, really? Oh, okay, cool. Well, you know, whatever works for you. It took me years after that to understand, oh, I, I, I have those issues too, but I just sweep them under the rug oh, so well okay. that I, I don't deal with it because it's just it's not useful to me. I thought you was like the most free individual I ever met. Yeah, I was, I was like, about to say this is very unusual. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean free? No, I. I well, I'm just saying. So many people plant seeds, and you know they plant seeds of doubt in your head, and you live with it. And I just love the fact that that wasn't even like you just ducked it like a boxer. But it goes somewhere. Right? Exactly. It goes somewhere. That's so that's I'm what saying. she's saying. That's why I know. That's why I take oh. back what I said. Because I'm like, oh, she puts it somewhere. It ain't. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wasn't conscious of it, though. Because, yeah. you know, you know what I'm saying? And so that's just a layer that it's the way I see it is it's hard enough to learn how to play music, any kind of music. But jazz, I mean, it's really fucking hard. Right. So who wants that extra burden? Who wants that extra layer of, oh, and I have to deal with this? You know, like somebody hit on, you know, I don't, I didn't get hit on a whole lot, uh, you know, without wanting to, <laughs> but you know, if, if a band leader hit on me in the middle of rehearsal or, you know, I, I would just be like, oh, oh man, really? Well, you know, fantasies are good. Let's go back to playing, you know, whatever. <laughs> and I never thought for one minute, I'm thinking of somebody and I'll, I'll say it, it was Stan Getz. And I never thought for a minute that it meant that I would lose the gig. And then when I start talking to these young people, all of that is going through their brain. Yes! Yes, all of it's going through their brain and they're not standing for it. Well, no, but now, but yeah, I'm now. talking about five, 10 years ago. Oh yeah, no, we just yeah. had to suck it up. You just suck, you just, yeah, you just. You... But they were wondering, well, what do I do? Yeah. Like, this, yeah. uh, you know, am I gonna lose the gig or, you know, right. how do I? And they started thinking, I realized, wow, that never crossed my mind. I told him, get out of here, let's go rehearse. You know, and it never crossed my mind that he would hold it against me. So that means technically you've never been disappointed by your heroes in that way? Oh, maybe not in that way. You know, not. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, I just had a flashback. But even that, you know, like if somebody, you know, you, you know, somebody's over your house, you come out and they're like sitting there naked or something. You know, even that would make me laugh. You know? No, no. Don't it depend on the legend? It could be real sad, though, Terry. It could be like, damn, come on, man. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, there's a lot of love. I think that um, Black women have have historically 
taking in uh, yeah, consideration all of these things. Right. And I'm like, as long as I don't feel like, you know, you're about to physically harm me, right? then I'm not really worried about it. You know, but what I'm, what I keep trying to say is you shouldn't have to be that way. Should. You shouldn't have to go through the extra burden. And that's what I will then take somebody down for. So I have to talk myself off a ledge now all the time, but that's for other people, for some of my students. I'm like, they say, what? And I'm like trying to go to the run of the school to beat somebody down. I'm like, okay, we can't do that. Right. You know, I got to like now try to intelligently talk to this person hmm. or use language. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Terry, I always wanted to know simply because I'm, I'm, I'm so drenched in hip hop. I have to be a shapeshifter. In other words, any track I hear, my first question I'm asking is, how would DJ Premier program this? Or how would Steve Ferroni drum on this? Or how would Tony Williams play this or whatever? Um, so oftentimes, you know, I'm shape-shifting, kind of in the, in the name of, of being a human sampler. Uh, but when you're starting to drum, who is the... Who's the drummer whose sound that you were most attracted to uh, when you first started? Based on, you know, you left Arsenio, I think, in 89. So uh, based on your symbol work, I always thought that Tony Williams might have been your North Star. But, you know, for you, who who were your, your three gods of drumming that you had in your mind when you were drumming? Well, at the end of the day, it became... Well, let me see. When I was 18, 17, uh, it was Jack DeJanette, and he became my biggest mentor. Uh, I purposely stayed away from trying to mimic Tony Williams um, and Elton Jones to a degree, too, because their styles are so individual that if I hear somebody playing like them, it sounds like a caricature of them more than anybody else, I think, because their styles are so strong. So even when you're playing with with Herbie or Wayne or a combo, it's the temptation to not go there well, doesn't hit you at all. <laughs> no, it it unfortunately uh, when I play with Herbie, especially in the earlier years. Well, see the thing is, you know, I played in six or seven different bands of Herbie's, so it, right, you know, depending on what project is. Yeah, exactly. So right. the first the the first long you know term gig I had with him, we were supporting. This is the drum. And then I had to play these grooves like with uh, with computers, right. you know, which I had never done. Uh, and then, uh, you know, trio, quartet, and, and then um, Gershwin's World, just those were more acoustic. But then um, the uh, Future to Future, mm -hmm. which, you know, was more, uh, it had, you know, some hybrid hip hop stuff in there as well. Right. But it was all, you know, mostly grooves. Um, so when I was playing straight ahead in the beginning, yeah, Tony Williams would creep out because I realized whenever I heard Herbie from all the records, it was mostly Tony playing with him. So that is the sound, you know, that my spirit related to, to Herbie, which was interesting because he told me that Jack DeJanette was his favorite drummer. And that's like my really? guy. Yeah, yeah. Back then. Yeah. And that's my guy. So, so Tony... So Jack DeJanette was Tony's sort of North Star as far as... No, no, no. I'm saying Herbie told me... Oh, Herbie said that. ...that Jack was his favorite drummer. Over Tony? And, yeah, that's what he told me. Wow. Um, okay. 
to play with. This is, you know, after, you know, many years after that right. classic Miles Davis quintet. So he, if you <clears> notice, <throat> I mean, he hired Jack on, you know, some of his records. And, but anyway, uh, so I thought, oh, this, that's my guy. So I'm good. You know, that's great. That's who I, that's my North star. Mm-hmm. But then once I started playing, <laughs> all this Tony snuck in, you know, which is interesting just because having heard him with Herbie all those years. What is, because of a lot of the Jack stuff that I heard, was more like fusion, like his seventies fusion work or whatever. I, how, oh. like for me, Tony is so heavy on symbol work mm-hmm. that you automatically and his ability to stop time and just you know for for our listeners today that you know, I, I guess you can say that sort of the way that Chris Dave's relationship with time, where mm-hmm. you know he it doesn't exist in his world, but it exists, but it doesn't exist. Tony was sort of, you know, that way straight ahead. But what what do you think that Jack's trademark was? Well, I think I, I disagree a little bit about Tony in a time existing and not existing because I feel like, uh, you know, Tony's uh, beat was pretty, it was beautiful. It was so beautiful, mm-hmm. um, his time feel. Oh, no, he would stay on rhythm, but do all yeah, these counter rhythms the- that... Yeah, but that's to me mathematics. You know what I mean? Like the counter rhythms, it's polyrhythms. It's things that that work within the structure of of a beat. And so what attracted me to Jack was the opposite of that. You know, the 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 time being elastic, and and, and like I hear him on this all. It's slinky like a snake. You know, it's um, and his touch. You know, I can tell Jack within a second of hearing him. You know, on any recording. Because it's his touch. Any great drummer, you're right, it's the ride symbol. You know, any great jazz drummer, their their identity lives in their ride symbol. Now, some some people like Tony, like a lot of great drummers, like Tony, like uh Art Blakey, uh, Max Roach, also part of their identity is uh what they've, you know, developed soloing. So they're they're licks, they're things that are signature, right? Mm-hmm. So there are signature licks. That you can say that Art Blakey or Tony Williams or Philly Joe Jones, but with Jack, it's not really signature licks. There's no licks. It's like it's all more organic. And the same thing. All of my favorite drummers, Roy Haynes. It, it all begins and ends with Roy Haynes. He's the hippest jazz oh, drummer. So glad, I'm so glad you said that. Oh God, my dad would be so glad you said that. <laughs> I just want to say this real quick. I'm so sorry to mean to interrupt y'all, but for some of us, '89 is when you ended Arsenio. It's a whole generation of other folks that go, like from my father, who go, "Little Terry, that was Roy Haynes' protege, and all of that." So it was just for me. I'm go, continue on, Terry. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's beautiful. You, you know, just a sidebar. His son sent me a video last night. Of his granddaughter, which would be Roy's great granddaughter, they had been asking. She had been asking for sticks, and he finally bought her this little kid. She's three. Little kid <laughs> set and sticks. And it was the first she's time playing. she ever held a pair of sticks, and she was like, blah, blah, blah. and she ended and flipped the sticks and put them under her arm. He was like, what? "You're the first person I'm sending this to." <laughs> for, for our listeners that don't know, uh, Roy Haynes is probably the. The elder statesman, I think, between him. Roy is 97 or 98. Still playing. Still playing like he's 40-something. Yes. That's crazy. Like it's nothing, you know. And, you know, and and with and his son, uh, Graham, and and whatever, like literally. Yes. 
just I should mention drumming. He, he taught my dad too. That's why it's so important to him too. Drumming geniuses. Yeah. Who, who's your dad? His name is Ron St. Clair, but my dad uh, had a nephew that he taught named Dennis Davis. So we're just a family. Oh, of I know like Dennis. Dr- yeah. I know. I knew Dennis. Yes. Yes. Well, Dennis that played with Stevie. Yes, Dennis Stevie. playing by himself, man. Playing by himself, man. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic. So slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Were you part of the MBA circle? Yeah, I was there when Steve named it. Like he said, I came up with this thing, you know, macro dash basic array of structural extemporizations. <laughs> wait a and minute. And I was like, good luck, I dude. Let's see if that's going anywhere. I wait, I did not know MBase was an acronym. What is it for? Macro dash basic array of structural extemporizations. Ooh, deep. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, we have a we did a record, um, which I think was really the beginning of Embase that never came out. Uh, It was for Gramavision, and uh, it was Gram. The horn section was Gram, Greg Osby, Steve, and uh, who am I missing? It was four. Oh, Robin Eubanks. And then the, okay. the rhythm section was Vernon Reed, Jerry Allen, me, and Kevin Harris. Yeah. Oh, man. You just opened up a door because I, I had a manager who was one of the top jazz DJs at uh, Temple uh, RTI in Philadelphia. And, you know, in his mind, like, M bass was the future, which is the reason why like a lot of M-Base, including like Cassandra and everybody like was on our first few records. Did you, at the time when you're in this movement, did you feel as though like, okay, we are the new generation. We're the native tongues. We're going to 
you know, push for it. How how much pushback at the time from like jazz traditionalists were you getting? Uh, well, you know, when that started, like I moved shortly thereafter to LA to do the Arsenio Hall show. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I was moving anyway, and then I got the show, and that just made my move have to happen in a week. I was out there looking for apartments. I was staying with Patrice Russian, and um, what was I the was audition process like? You you just dropped a lot in that one sentence. You sure <laughs> did. P.S. Another former guest of Questlove's Pre. Yes, indeed. Uh, right, Our right, girl. Right. Yes, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I was playing with Wayne Shorter right, at the time. So, and Diane Reeves was my best friend. She lived in L.A. She I met her at that same time when I Clark Terry. So she was nineteen and I was ten. We were both guests with Clark that time when I told you about the Buddy Rich story. Yeah. So when I went to L.A. And, uh, you know, rehearsed with Wayne or we went to Japan, I would just stop in L.A. and stay for a while and stay with Diane and then and Patrice. And uh, Patrice, she was on um, Joyrider, you know, with us. So it was around that time. And so the three of them convinced me to move to L.A. So I, this was the end of uh, 88. So I went uh, right around Thanksgiving to L.A. and looked for an apartment. And then somehow it was Narda Michael Walden and Patrice maybe one other person that recommended me for the Arsenio Hall show. And so I went in and I just played a couple of tunes with them and, and I got the gig, but they were like, you got to be back here next week. We start tape, you know, we start next week, the day after new year's. Uh, so I had a week to go home and pack up um, in Fort green and, and move to Glendale, California. Oh. But um, yeah. And I, I, I stayed with Patrice while I was looking um so the audition process wasn't very, I don't even know how many drummers they had. They had mm-hmm. audition. Uh, Sandra, okay, can you play funk? Can you play jazz? Can you play, you know? Yeah. And, you know, Michael Wolf was there. Michael Wolf, so it wasn't, right. It wasn't any heavy funk, you know what I mean? It wasn't any, yeah. But it was a good, a great experience, you know, and I feel like it set me up, you know, more for doing the Vibe TV show with Greg Filling Games. And that was, yeah. you know, more... Um, more of a, of a band that could play with anybody. So, like, we play with James Brown. We play with Aaliyah. We play with uh, Destiny's Child. We play right. with, uh, I don't know, Rick James. We play with, you know, just a lot of, it was an amazing experience playing with all those people, whereas the first one, we didn't really play with that many people that came on. But I, you were saying something else. Um, I, was, I fell down a hole. Oh, well, the M-Base. Uh... Oh, M-Base, yeah. So what happened was, they were moving on, and when I look back and like the, when that record we made, everybody had to bring in a song, and Steve had made this um, like kind of criteria for the music of it not being straight ahead and having you know rhythms or grooves kind of from more modern because he was into James Brown, but mm-hmm. you know more modern grooves, but with um, harmony and stuff moving like jazz but not necessarily in the traditional kind of two five one way um and and things that weren't in that kind of form like no aaba forms and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. right so what i wrote was more popish so to say and Mm -hmm. if you if you would listen to it like my song was the outlier on the record because i listened to everything he said and i did everything literally in these little sections odd time signatures or whatever and but it really pointed to something more commercial, so to say, mm-hmm. than their writing. And, um, you know, I know so many, it was like a potpourri of music, but it was probably good that the record never came out. But um, so I didn't feel so connected. I feel like I was there in the beginning, 
but I wasn't super connected and I was playing with Wayne and I was really just trying to do that gig because I hadn't really played um, a fusion gig. Like when I auditioned for Wayne, it was 14 drummers and, you know, I got the gig somehow. <laughs> and that was my first real uh, foray into just, you know, playing groove stuff. But I had been listening, of course, to Weather Report and, and all of that. And, you know, coming up, I mean, Earth, Wind & Fire was my favorite band. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had asked earlier if I was listening to all this other music. I mean, I remember the first place I, I was when I heard Go-Go at a party. Excuse and, um, me? Where'd you hear Go-Go at a party in, in Massachusetts? In, in West Medford. In Medford. Where what? I said it was a black community. With, see, it's not. I know, but it's so, Go-Go so localized. That's why I'm like, it made it up there? Okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Chuck Brown. And then I remember the first time, you know, I was at another one of those parties, you know, I heard Rapper's Delight. You know, it was my first introduction to hip-hop. I didn't know what was happening before that. Right. But, enough. Um, yeah, you know, so, like, I was listening to all of that stuff coming up. Um, and, you know, I, I just as a sidebar, uh, I was in B Street, so I feel like I was actually oh, part wait, of... Wait, 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 wait. Stop, stop. Hold oh, on. on Come back. You didn't know that? No. <laughs> yeah, I'll send you a little clip. It was just, a, like, a quick cameo, but... Wait, when, um, when they were doing the ballet thing on stage? Yep. Was it Rainbow? Uh, oh. Uh, yeah, right. but I was brought in from Medford, Massachusetts by Harry Belafonte yeah, like, to play like this little drum fill. I'm basically. sorry. These sentences are so compound that you give. I'm so sorry. I know. I was spied <laughs> by Harry Belafonte for the Beach Street cameo. What? Well, because, yeah, because he was the producer of Beach Street and Diana about that too. Was, was playing in his band. So I had made an album that's actually going to come out 40 years later now. Uh, with Kenny Barron, Buster Williams, and George Coleman. And I was I was uh, 16 mm-hmm. at the time. So we had just done it. So at this point now I'm 17. And uh, Diane came to Boston with Harry. So I hadn't seen her since this Wichita Festival when I was 10. So we had a big reunion. And she I gave her this tape of my album. It was a green cassette tape. And mm-hmm. she gave it to Harry. And then out of the blue, he just called. And we thought it was a joke, you know. There's a couple of people that called we thought it was a joke. Benny Goodman called once, too. We definitely thought that was a joke, but, <laughs> but it wasn't. And you just hang up on him? And like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, with Harry, though, yeah, we were Stop like, Stop playing on. on my phone. Amir, you are making the wrong movies around the wrong people. I'm like, when does this movie <laughs> Yo, come out? This I'm is a- literally, I'm literally, okay, I'm watching the scene right now. I'm yeah, sorry, was, I, I had to yeah, pull but, it up on my monitor. Yeah, no, I was yeah. like, I was talking about my Terry Lynn Carrington movie about her it, life because it's, I've oh. never, never in my whole, there's never been a, never, never. This, oh. this, this is crazy. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's, yeah, yeah. So I feel like, you know, like on some weird, in some weird way, that was, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? That was kind of predicting, you know, I've always felt connected to all the genres, genres you yeah. know. I've always been a bit of a bridge, you know, with all the genres because, I mean, I'm a jazz head, of course. But, I mean, I went through many years when I lived in L.A. saying, don't call me a jazz musician. You know, I'm just a musician. Then, you know, I had to come back. You know, like my dad mm-hmm. was like, you can't run away from who you are. Yeah. And um, and also, you stay collaborating with folks. So, I'm like, I know you still got your ear to the streets because, you know, you still got folks like Rhapsody on records and whatnot. So. Yeah, I'm doing A&R now for uh, Candid, which is an old label um, that John Burke and the team that he's with at uh, Acceleration Music, they're buying labels. They bought uh, Alligator Records, they bought Candid, they bought a hip-hop label. 
too. So I'm doing it's you know, so a dream that I always want. I always wanted to do. I read Hitman back in the day, and I wanted to do A and R. Yeah. And one day I was walking, and I said, "Well, that's one." Wait, you know, you read Hitman and then still wanted to be in the industry. <laughs> oh yeah, that was what I wanted to do. Hey. <laughs> that would have been the red light to be like, "Nah, don't don't come here." You're like, no. "Oh, okay. I wanted to." No, you know, I wanted to be Clive Davis. I wanted to be. You know, like, and so I felt like, you know, there was only two black women, you know, that were doing were doing that, right? Suzanne DePass and um, uh, Sylvia Rohn. Yeah, so when people ask me about glass ceilings, that's what I say. As yeah. a producer, as an A&R person, those are the places I, I felt more of a glass ceiling than, than playing the drums necessarily. Interesting. You know? Oh, getting so in now, the industry. Like, you ain't yeah. got the ears. Like, you ain't got the ears. Yeah, like like I mean, or like I'm in some little jazz box over here that you know, because I'm I'm like all of those people were attorneys. They don't have no ears on me. So what are you a and R for right now specifically? Like what do you what do you? Well, the the idea with candidate, I mean, it's all relatively new, but it's to try to find uh, people that are really merging jazz with hip hop and and, oh, that's fun uh, assignment. Yeah, exactly. But just it's a it's a catalog label too, and and we're not going to say no to certain cool records. So the first record that I got done happened to be a live record with Wayne Shorter, Esperanza, and myself. Oh! And um, so that's going to be coming out uh, in September, I think. Okay. And and then I have a new record that will be coming out on it too. And then I um the other person I signed was Morgan Garen, who's been playing in my band uh but he's like a program dude it's not necessarily hip-hop but it's like i don't know it's kind of like if you took wayne shorter and and then had him like today and programming and using you know all of the right uh things that are available today you know so i i have so many questions but since we're just going all over the place as a professor coming full circle now to, back to berkeley do you find yourself in a position? So the, the, the year that I left NYU, I, I did NYU for like four or five years. And my last year, I kind of had an oh shit moment when I realized that my students knew more than I did. You know, we were talking about, I think my last class, I, I believe we taught about Thriller. And they had a lot of uh, synth questions, like synth choice questions that I had to do extra homework on. I realized like, yo, these kids are, smartest shit like they know more than i do as a professor especially with where music is going in now i don't know specifically the the class that you're teaching at berkeley but you know there's so many levels of musicianship as far as like gospel chop musicians and and broken beat musicians i I guess now there's lo-fi kind of that genre of music whatever in your mind not, not do you feel as if you have something to contribute but do you sometimes feel like a stranger in a strange land with the way that uh, musicianship is approached now? For instance, I have a, I have a member uh, in my group right now who we don't know exactly how to describe what Stro Elliott does, where he plays a drum machine as if he is Tykowski or like a piano player, where he's playing samples and whatnot. So with this whole new generation of musicians there, like what what is teaching a student at Berkeley in 2022, henceforth, when it seems that now is the time when the rules are being just washed away and new rules are coming in? Well, I mean, that's really interesting because that taps on a few things for me. 
I try to stay around young musicians. I mean, everybody in my band is younger than me and people that wrote in a different way than, than I do. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I'm talking about the social science band. So if you if you heard that record, I think it mm-hmm. definitely pointed to something different than I would have been able to do on my own, you know, because of the, the writing and uh, and the players, you know, like Morgan and uh, and you know Matt and, and the ideas of mixing other genres, like you know somebody like Matt Stevens mixes more indie rock. Aaron Parks is you know like leads into classical composers. You know, Morgan's into, you know, more of the kind of new school jazz. Uh, and then I had Casa overall, who um, is not really with us anymore. Kokai is doing it, but Casa, uh, you know, is definitely kind of into more. Love Kokai. Jazz. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jazz meets hip hop. So the idea was to, for me, to recognize, kind of like, you know, Prince did, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that's my favorite part about Purple Rain is that Prince was like, Finally, like, oh, like, you know, I need to, in order for me to remain relevant, I have to let Wendy and Lisa write, you know. So for for me, that was kind of like my reckoning with I'm going to do much better, you know, with this kind of collective. So I feel like I've always tried to keep my ear and my my spirit to what's happening now, even though I can't do it like, you know, like they do. You know, I never had gospel chops as something that you know, I just never did it. Never went to church, never you know played in church, and never developed that kind of technique. And I don't really hear the drums like that. But I can see how you know listening to this younger generation, how it has influenced me to some degree. You know, and um, so as far as a strange, strange land, I don't really feel that. I feel like I'm constantly being fed, you know, and it, it kind of, you know, in the end, you know, comes out my way and I still feel like I can comment, you know, and, and on what they're doing. As so you're a teacher. still a student at Berkeley. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always a student, always a student. But you know, the, what that also taps on though is how jazz education has screwed up jazz because what I'm dealing with mostly are people that come out of jazz programs and now the people in the jazz programs are mostly affluent, you know, from certain cities. I don't know, like it's all over really, but people that had programs in school and jazz was kind of more street music, you know, I mean, it was from the people yeah, <laughs> and their experience. It wasn't in academia. Exactly. So the academia, they started, you know, they were able to codify it in a way and then, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Make make money from it, <laughs> monetize you know, it, yeah, monetize it. But there was another word, um, commodify, commodify. It. Yeah, okay, yeah. And um, I feel like now to get into a school, you have to be on this certain level and have gone through this system, mm-hmm. which is you know is still yeah. dealing with you know it's yes, it's, it's prohibitive it's a, for a lot of people. Yeah, and it's a racist, sexist system. Yeah. You know, well, so and income based. <laughs> well, that's what I mean. Yeah, that's why it's racist. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, 
What I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. There's a certain side of musicianship that I'm seeing now with younger people in which they're able to do whatever, fly to the bumblebee levels of speed and literally just packing everything in the first one minute. Whereas where I tell them to do something like my, my dad had a trick where he would make musicians just play a ballad, play something very simple. And man, they will all fall apart one by one. They would just like fall this. Like if you ask them to play T for two or, or chopsticks, it was like asking them to play rights of spring. So as, as a teacher, do you find it that more students are now in this, we're in an era now where like your Instagram stories is 15 seconds. Like your, your TikTok is 30 seconds. Like you got to have all the impact of an entire performance in 30 seconds with you know, they don't believe that much in space or quietness anymore. Like, have is is there such thing as a drummer who just plays straight ahead and gives what's required, or are you dealing with like more gospel chops people that have to like have bells Gotta and whistles and fire <laughs> eating and everything? <laughs> fire eating, I love it. Time feel is the most important thing. Period. Right. For a drummer, like if you don't have a time feel that feels good, then nothing else really matters, no matter what the genre, you know. And then it needs to be, you know, I'm into playing free these days. You know, I was just kind of where my head is. But there's time in that, you know, it's not it's not like free means absolutely no time. Uh, And I think the people that play free the best are ones that have good rhythm. Um, But as far as the students are concerned, um, I don't teach drums anymore. Uh, I haven't done that in probably like six years or so. Uh, I just have ensembles. And right now I'm, I'm the artistic director of an institute 
Um, but I do have two ensembles in that institute. And so I'm just dealing with the overall sound of the, of the group more than individuals. Uh, but it's the same thing with all the instruments, what you're saying. Is that hard to convey now to a generation that feels like, to me, all-star games are the most boringest games ever in basketball because, you know, going to try to show off. Whereas a Golden State Warriors in Boston, sorry, by the way, um, <laughs> you know, not. It's, yeah. it's, it's literally about teammate and you putting in your 20% and him putting in his 20% and doing 100%. Do, is right. that harder to convey on, on students now as far as ensemble is concerned? Well, I mean, sometimes I'm actually asking them to play more because that's the the part of me that is like old school and jazz. Like, you know, like you got to like I'm finding that a lot of them can't play consecutive eighth notes and construct lines that are interesting. You know, they've gone into this, like moved into something else. And I think they're using too much space sometimes. Like what you're saying, I would have thought like a little bit back in the day where everybody was just blazing all the time. And mm. yeah, that's tiring. I get tired of listening after, you know, a minute or two. That's why I, that's another reason why I don't really listen too much or prefer to listen to the gospel chops drumming because I'm bored after I, you know, it's just, I, I get bored, you know, because right. I'm not a geek, a drum geek, you know, so I don't really care about mm. that. And I think at the end of the day, that's what your job is to make the listener care, right? What is it that, why do we even do this? You know, so if, if you feel like it's to make them groove, that's, they care, you know, that's a, a level of care, right? But I also feel like, you know, kind of coming out of a, the Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock book, I think it's about touching uh, the humanity in them, you know, exploring what it is that you share in common. So how do I inspire you? That's my humanity mm. uh, relating to your humanity. And so that's where my head is. And so sometimes when I'm listening to some of these young musicians, I can't get past their sound, let alone the notes, you know, because there's nothing in their sound yet. There's no pain. There's, you know, I don't hear the joy. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I try to get them to, you know, go back to the beginning. Like I, I remember uh, once being um, on some, I got honored and it was a, I can't remember who it was, but there was a pro ball player, uh, must've been for the Patriots. And cause it was in a Boston event. And he said, and I'll never forget this cause this is uh, how I feel too in music. But he said, you know, he was all star in college. And then when he got to the Patriots, they said, now let us show you, you know, how to throw the ball or how to catch the ball. <laughs> uh, he had to like go back. He played it a little bit. And we'll then, go back to the basics. <laughs> burn. <laughs> wow. Yeah, go back to the basics. So for me, that's the same with sound. You know, like, why is it that Wayne Shorter can play one note and break your heart? True. You know, like, True. it's about what you're projecting, True. you know? So the greatest compliments I ever get is when somebody said, damn, somebody else just played that drum set. But then when you played it, like, wow, you know, the sound changed. And that's when I know I'm, I'm that's right. That's what, because <laughs> it's the sound is your spirit. Right. You know what I mean? I would say probably uh, the Mosaic Project is one of your most beloved projects. Could you tell me about just the whole concept of, of doing that album and, 
and gathering these uh, these women together to to do this album and and how it came to fruition? Yeah, um, I did a gig in um, Israel. I had a gig in Israel called Esperanza. It was the first time, well, the second time we played together. Uh-huh. And um, she was still, like, she had come out of Berkeley and started teaching at Berkeley. And that's when I met her, her first year teaching. So I called her and Jerry Allen and a saxophone player from Holland, Tinika Postma. I realized I called three women for a gig just based on the way they played. I didn't realize that it was three women Right. And this was going to be an all-women qu- quartet until after I had you know, booked them. So it wasn't anything I was trying to do. I just wanted to play with the three of them. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is a big deal for me. Because throughout my whole career, people had asked me, oh, could you do this women's festival? Could you play with these women? And I was kind of like, you know, <laughs> when I look at somebody like Mary Lou Williams, who didn't want to play with other women, she's like, well, why would I want to play with them when I'm playing with the best? You know, I was wondering uh, how you felt about this. Go ahead. Yes. Okay. We kind of patronizing. Yeah. 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 And so I shied away from it my entire career. And there was always be somebody like, you know, I played with Ingrid Jensen uh, or, you know, Rini Rosness with Wayne, uh, with Bernard Wright, you know, rest in peace. Rest in peace. Um, And uh, there was always a woman here or there, you know, Jerry back with with, with Embase and before that, actually. But Never all together, you know, and I really shied away from it. So I did it. And then I said, this is a moment that I really want to celebrate and shine some light on. So I started with just the four of them. And then I just kept adding people. And it just became like 21 women. And that's really just how how it started. And I wasn't really trying to make any kind of political statement other than, oh, there are a lot of amazing women that play. And let me just put to this record you know so this is how the sisterhood started then because i was yeah. going to ask you is there a sisterhood in in well i was gonna say jazz but really of course jazz when it comes to musicians you know of a sisterhood in that way i mean there there is but there's a lot of women uh that are playing jazz that still they they think about it uh how do i say not as much like a sisterhood because you know we're affected by the patriarchy too right so yeah. women are invested in it yeah, they don't want to play with other women because they feel like it's a step down That's, or something. But as more greats are coming out of the fold, how does it be? How is it a step down to play with Terry Lynn? Well, that's, well, that's the well. I mean, that's the point. That it, it, it's only going to happen. That's why I started an apprenticeship program yeah. and mentorship program at New Music USA because there's a lot of mentorship programs, but apprenticeship means you have to put them on the stage with mm-hmm. you. Okay, good. And so we got a grant of $1.25 million hey. to do this three-year program. And we had 86 applicants this first year, and we picked seven. And so, like, I, I did pairings. And um, so some of the mentors are Bobby McFerrin and Wayne Shorter and, you know, uh, lots of different people. But some of the, the apprenticeships are with Chris Potter, Linda Mejano, um, Esperanza, okay. Marcus Miller, he took one, one, Alexis, which is great. She's having a blast playing with him. So I just feel like I thought, how do we get more men to hire women? Because if they don't really do it on their own because they need to, you know, they, they don't necessarily know that they need to contribute to this, this shift. So, how do we get them? So I said, pay them. 
you know. But once <laughs> the men start hiring women, then the women will start hiring women. Well, no, no, what I mean is once, you know, everybody has to be invested in yeah. gender equity because it's, it's for the good of everybody. Yeah. And I just felt like the, the one way to get people interested is, is have it affect their wallet. If they're getting a free musician and getting, uh, you know, a little money on top of that, it, it might make it easier. Yeah. And it's, you know, so far kind of work, you know, this is our inaugural year. Um, but anyway, I think that this last record, though, Waiting Game, is the one, it's the only one I can listen to. Let's put it like that. The other ones I can't, what? I can't really listen to. What? What? But Waiting Game, I can still listen to. So okay. I think that's, for me, my favorite of all the albums I ever no, made. Because I, I don't cringe when I listen. So you're still like in your head about like I could have did that better, or we could have did a big different take, or yeah, or just sometimes like Mosaic Project, uh, the first one. Um, I mean, I like things on the second one too, but the the Mosaic Project, I think the the playing is good overall. Um, there's like some sound things, like you know, some production things that really bug me, but. Um, mm-hmm. You know, playing's good overall, but it's a little bit far away from where I am as a musician. There's a little bit of my writing that bothers me, you know, that I'm like, oh, man, I, I could have really developed that idea much better. And I've improved as a writer since then. So that's what, you know, but overall, I think, you know, the playing is OK. Oh, so you're writing, writing these lyrics on Waiting Game. OK. Well, you've been also singing on all of your records. That's you, you've sung on it since your first album. You've sung. Yeah, except this last one I didn't, you know. Okay. But um, on Waiting Game I didn't. But uh, I wrote all the lyrics, yeah. Okay. Game. okay. But um, yeah, I tried to sing a little bit. <laughs> Man, you you got to I guess bucket list check a project um, before she died, um, maybe like six months before Amy Winehouse died, uh, she was stalking me daily, telling me that her and I were going to redo Money Jungle. And money jungle. Yeah, uh, the uh, the money money jungle album from uh, Duke Ellington and Max Roach and, and Charles Minkus, the the famous trio record. And That's what I I did that record. Are I know, serious? and you wound up pulling it off. <laughs> so we we were planning me, her, and most Def and a few other musicians were going to cover the entire album. Oh and my she, god! Right, really? and, she, and she passed away, and ah oh man, I I was just heartbroken, and then. A year and a half, or for the for the 50th anniversary, you actually what made you want to cover that entire album? Because when that I seen so it, I was bizarre. like, "Yo, what the hell!" Like it That's came out, wild. but I wasn't even <laughs> mad at it. But what what made you want to cover that album? I, you know, people ask me that all the time, and I don't know. It's just <laughs> it haunted me. I don't know what made me choose it, other than it just kind of haunted me. And um, I started reading all these Duke Ellington biography books and. Um, and I was transcribing, you know, on the piano, and I realized these are all mostly blues-based songs, probably the easiest stuff that Duke Ellington wrote. Mm-hmm. And I knew that um, it was as far as I could go, you know, like with transcribing Duke Ellington, a trio record. You know, right. And, um, That's the easiest. Yeah. yeah. And, and, this, and it wasn't complex, you know, in general. So uh, I kept flipping, like, you know, some of the songs to the point they didn't sound like it. So even, you know, Christian said when he came to the session, he said, you know, you really could have just called most of these songs something else. <laughs> and 
you know, right, you right. Your and then claimed it as your. <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, I I just I I wanted to make sure that uh, I wasn't bastardizing, you know, Duke Ellington's music. Right. And um, I read enough interviews, like he said, jazz. We stopped using that that word in 1947. He said, jazz. That just means freedom of expression. And so when I realized uh, that's how he felt, then I felt okay, you know, about changing his music to that degree. Okay. And at this phase of your career, um, and you pretty much have done everything. You've you've done scores. You've taught television. You've done everything. Um, Is there something that you have yet to embark on that you wish to do for this phase of your career right now? Oh man, I'm just getting started as far as I can. I mean, I I'm, doing, I'm doing so much now that I'm a little pissed that some of these opportunities didn't come before I'm, you know, I'm a little tired. I'm 56. No, you ain't. Right. That's I'll, a lie. I'll be 57 in two months. You look like um, somebody's baby. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm a little tired, you know, and I wish... Uh, that I had some of these opportunities earlier. Like right now, I can tell you a couple of things. Really? Yeah, right? Really? Yeah, Dog, you know who, what who I does mean? this at, in 50s? Like, I, I've been waiting for this at 20. I think this is the time exactly. you're ready for it. At least 41, at, le- at least but 39. Fonte, say that again. Fonte, yeah, say it again. You got it now because you're ready for it now. If you got it in your 20s, you would have fucked it up. Hello? Well, not Terry, but maybe Amir. Right. Yeah. Nah, everybody would everybody fucks up. He started too. so early, so I don't know. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, you know I, no, but I hear you. Uh I hear you. I, I I feel you because I feel the same way. And honestly, I, I hear what you're saying. We're wiser and maybe we're doing it better or different. But I feel like I'm the same person really. Like I you know, twenty years ago I would have been going on thirty seven. Mm-hmm. Even fifteen years ago I, I would have had more energy. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I knew most of the things that I know now. I just have a little more confidence now because I'm older. But if I had gotten opportunities, because the way I see it is there's a lot of, and I say this when I talk to young women that feel like, oh, we, we, we're not ready to be in the, if they're at North Texas or something, they say, we're not ready to be in the one o'clock band. I don't want to get the opportunity to play in the one o'clock band when I'm really two o'clock band material you know mm-hmm. and i'm like wait a minute there's a lot of marginal white men that have ha- had these opportunities mm-hmm. you know like that weren't ready mm-hmm. and why do we have to be like three times oh we ready? have to be super you dope know? no we, that's just a, the program that way right like right so that's what i resent yeah. i resent not having some opportunities when i was in my 30s and 40s when <clears throat> i really had the energy but now i'm you know i'm burning the candle i'm, I'm um I mean, writing, you know, projects, writing words, you know, like I'm writing a children's book. I'm I'm doing some uh, film for a, an exhibition. Uh, Has anybody so, approached you about a something about your life? Because there is yeah, no is one ever about or? you. There's nobody like you in the world. Like this is no, nobody's nobody's approached me yet about that. Um, no memoir. No, I'm just trying to get my dad. Uh, he's going to like start because he has a better memory than me. And he's 84. Interview oh. your dad right now. Yeah, yeah exactly. that's what I'm doing. I'm currently in. Yeah, I'm starting. I'm going to interview my mom. Like just I think generally like everyone should just yeah. interview their elders and get all the stories out. So that way that they're they're preserved. 
You know, and I also want to say to you too, uh, are you, uh, I tried to, uh, you might not hear the inspiration, but on um, Break You Off, you know, that end drum thing? Right. On um, Break You Off. So like I have an end drum thing on, on a tune of mine on the second mosaic, uh, uh, Patrice Russian song, When I Found You. Right. So that was like your inspiration from the end of Break You Off is what, what made me write that section at the end. But it's in 15, but I think it's 15. But it's, if you check it out, I, I don't know. You know, I said once to Wayne Shorter, I wrote this. You knew you were my inspiration. He was like, oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm like, he was like, oh, thank here. you so Dang, much. Dang, we, we should have asked yeah. where we ever see y'all on a stage together or on on, on a We never, we, oh, damn, I should have asked that question because y'all never been on a stage together. Hey. Well, never now, too late. <laughs> now, now, now's the time before I'm going to tell Christian, I'm going to tell Christian make it happen. Here you go. <laughs> This is long overdue. I thank you so much uh, for coming on our show. You got to come back because I've skipped so many, so many questions I had about your career that I've skipped. No, let's do and part two because yes. I want to hear about Tia Fuller, Lester Bowie, Diana Cross. Oh man, everybody. Lester Bowie, yeah. No, this will turn into a Jimmy Jam episode. I, yeah. I assure you. Like yeah. Terry is actually like a four-hour episode on the real. So, yeah. oh, but well, thank I have you to go get tested. Me. I'm still at my day uh, job, sneaking on my lunch break. Uh, <laughs> thank you for existing, Terry. Just thank you. Thank you. Thank uh, you. No, thank that's you. real. Like, uh, you, you you know, I saw you drumming mad early and, and you know, you were, you were the first kid that I saw doing what I wanted to do for a living. That was that was really inspirational yeah. to see. And yeah. I, I that's thank you for pretty that. wild. I, I never would have imagined that. And um, really, I... Um, that makes me feel really good. Thank you yeah. so much. He Thank wasn't you. alone. Yeah. Uh, well, on behalf of Laia, Sugar Steve, uh, Unpaid Bill, and Fonticolo, this is Quest Love. And we will see you on the next go round on the next episode of Quest Love Supreme. We'll see y'all. Peace. Quest Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.